0: Police tonight are warning that a deranged killer is on the loose. He's now killed twice and may strike again. Lady Winifreda Ashton played a game of bingo here at her local club yesterday afternoon. She went to her bank. Within half an hour she was dead. She'd been bashed in the bin room of her block of units and strangled with her hose. Her attacker escaped with a small amount of money. Today her neighbours were shocked and living in fear. Well, was it Lady Ashton? This is not the first time the killer has hit this area. Two months ago, another elderly woman was murdered in an almost identical crime. At these flats, just a couple of blocks away from Lady Ashton's unit, Gwendolyn Mitchell-Hill was bashed and left to die in her foyer. Again, all for a few dollars. The police say the similarities are chilling. Hi guys, welcome to the True Crime Sisters podcast. Thank you for joining us again this week. And I just wanted to quickly thank a few more of our patrons for supporting the show. Um, all our patrons are just amazing. They've really been helping to keep us motivated and bring out new content. If you've recently joined and you don't hear your name today, as I said last week, just know that it's coming. We've had quite a few joining up while we we're on break. So big thank you to Tammy, Hannah, Lynette, Emma, Kayla ariel madison sarah jane tara and erin thanks so much guys and if you were interested in getting some more episodes from us you can always sign up to our patreon as we said last week we've got five episodes up there at the moment and i'm currently working on our february patreon episode which will be released on the 5th of february and that's about the terry missy beavers case before we start, I just did want to give a warning that today's case is pretty brutal. It deals with very severe crimes against vulnerable elderly women, and in you know in that way it is quite disturbing. So if you did want to switch off for this episode, there will be no hard feelings. So with that, I'm going to hand you over to Bill. Thanks, Harry. This week, we are discussing
1: a case that took place in the late 80s and early 90s and shook the North Shore area of Sydney to its core. On the 1st of March 1989, in the late afternoon, an 82-year-old woman named Gwendolyn Mitchell Hill, or Gwen to her friends and family, was returning to her home in Mossman, Sydney. Mossman is an affluent suburb that is located approximately 8 kilometres from the Sydney CBD and is one of the wealthiest suburbs in Sydney. Gwen lived in Camellia Gardens, which is an apartment block where most of the residents are elderly widows.
0: As Gwen walked towards her home, a man had spotted her and decided that she would be the perfect target for his sick desires. He took a hammer from his car and hid it in his belt, slowly approaching the elderly woman from behind. As she approached the entryway to her apartment, he hit her in the back of the head with a hammer and then continuously until she fell to the floor unconscious. He found her purse and took $100 cash from it before fleeing. Soon after the attack, she was discovered by two schoolboys who were coming out of the apartment elevators and found her with blood dripping from her head wounds. The boys went for help and bystanders began to gather. The initial thought was that she had fallen and hit her head and well-meaning
1: neighbours tried to clean up her blood out of respect. It wasn't long before paramedics attended the scene to try to help the elderly Gwen. David Harriman, paramedic of the New South Wales Ambulance Service, later voiced his concerns that there was something off about the scene. He knew that although elderly people do fall over, a fall doesn't create such extensive head injuries. He noticed her belongings had been neatly placed and asked one of her friends who was at the scene to check whether she had been robbed. Upon checking, they realised that her purse was missing.
0: Gwen was rushed to the emergency room and her doctors determined that her wounds were inconsistent with a fall and were more in line with what they would expect to see after an assault. Unfortunately, after trying to save her, Gwen did pass away. In her postmortem examination, chief forensic pathologist of the Department of Forensic Medicine, Dr. Johan DeFlo, agreed that her wounds were not typical of a fall. He noted that when people are conscious and they fall, they generally will try to turn to catch themselves, so it was highly unlikely that Gwen's head injury would be a result of hitting the floor. Gwen's body showed severe bruising to the right eye and right shoulder, as well as the back of her skull, all consistent with being hit with a blunt object. She also had seven broken ribs. There was no evidence of a sexual assault. It was concluded that Gwen had been the victim of a vicious attack and that her death was a homicide. Police knew there were two options when it came to Gwen's
1: killer. It was either someone who was related to her or a stranger. Based on the limited available evidence, they began to form the opinion that it was most likely a stranger involved in her death. The attack took place in broad daylight right in the middle of the day. The chances of her attacker being seen were high. But when police canvassed the neighbourhood, nobody had seen anything suspicious that they could recall. Two months later, on the 9th of May, 84-year-old Lady Winifreda Ashton, widow of renowned landscape artist Sir William Ashton, was walking home from running her errands. She stopped briefly at her mailbox before continuing onto the front lobby of her building. Little did she know she was being stalked.
0: Her attacker followed her into the foyer of her apartment building and forced her into a small alcove where the apartment's rubbish bins were kept. He then attacked her with a hammer that he had used in his previous attack and threw her to the ground. Although she did fight hard, almost overpowering him at one point, he did eventually get the better of her. Once she was unconscious, he took off her pantyhose and used them to strangle her. He then placed her shoes and cane neatly by her feet, and left with her purse. The sick man took her money to the local Mosman RSL, where he commented to staff that he hoped the siren sound coming from outside weren't for another mugging. Police knew as soon as they saw her that Lady Ashton had been murdered. The crime scene was so obviously similar to the prior murder of Gwen Mitchell Hill that they were sure that they were probably linked. They had taken place at the same time of day. The women were similar in age, Money was taken in both crimes and the women were both brutally assaulted.
1: Investigators noticed some grey hairs in Lady Ashton's gloved hand and it was thought that she had either grabbed these from her attacker or they had been from her own head. The hair was sent to a forensic laboratory but unfortunately grey hairs are not very distinctive from person to person and at the time DNA testing was a very new science and they didn't get enough from the hair to identify the killer. Police felt as though the murder of Lady Ashton was an escalation on Gwen's murder because her lower body had been left bare. They began to think that there might be some sort of sexual motivation behind the murders. Because the murders were taking place at approximately 4pm, investigators wondered whether the perpetrator might be a student that was looking for money. The guilty person would have to be free in the afternoon, which ruled out people who worked 9-5 to jobs.
0: When the post-mortem examination was conducted, forensic pathologist Dr Liliana Schwartz found no evidence of direct sexual assault. Because Lady Ashton's expensive diamond ring was still on her finger, it was thought that robbery may not be considered the primary motive for the attack. While it would be some time before the man committed another murder, he did commit some crimes in the meantime. On the 6th of June, he molested a 77-year-old woman named Marjorie Moseley at the Wesley Gardens Retirement Home in Belrose. She let staff know that a man had put his hands under her nightie but that she was unable to identify him. On the 24th of June, at the Carolyn Chisholm Nursing Home in Lane Cove, the man approached an elderly female patient and lifted up her dress, touching her buttocks. He then went into an adjoining room and indecently assaulted another patient, who screamed out for help. He was briefly questioned by a staff member before running away quickly. On the 8th of August, he assaulted an elderly woman, Effie Carney, in a back street in Sydney's Upper North Shore. On the 6th of October, the man approached a blind patient in the Wybena nursing home in Neutral Bay, pretending to be her physician. He molested her and she cried out for help. Unfortunately, he got away before he could be identified. On the 18th of October, 1989,
1: 86-year-old Doris Cox was walking down a narrow path to her retirement village in Mossman. She made it to the secluded stairwell at the front of her building when she was approached from behind and had her face bashed into the brick wall. She fell to the ground. She was fortunate enough to survive the attack but was found on the ground covered in blood and shaken up. That's just so So sad. sad. I just can't imagine. It was initially thought that she had had a fall and the crime scene was washed down out of respect. She unfortunately could not provide a description of her attacker because she suffered from chronic dementia and couldn't remember the attack. I think because I used to work in aged care, I'm just, like, imagining as I even, like, knew a Doris and, like, I'm just, like, it's just so sad, like... They're so such a vulnerable vulnerable. population. Yeah, that's what it is. They're so vulnerable. Her injuries were very similar to some of the injuries sustained by the women who had lost their lives, and police had a strong feeling that the perpetrator was the same person. Police immediately canvassed the area, but nobody had seen the crime take place. However, people had seen a young man in the area riding a skateboard only metres from the crime scene, and he became a primary person of interest. A sketch of him was released, and so were media reports that police wanted to speak to him.
0: However, the young man was never found. On the 2nd of November 1989, Dorothy Benke was walking home in the back streets of Lane Cove with her groceries. A man approached her and offered to help her carry her shopping home. While she was initially hesitant, she decided he seemed harmless and pleasant and invited him into her home for a coffee. The man politely declined and left without incident. After he left Dorothy's house, he passed 85-year-old Margaret Pahood, who was also struggling with her grocery bags. Instead of offering to help her, he pulled out his hammer and attacked her in a similar fashion to the women before her. He pulled up her dress, carelessly exposing her, and ran away with her purse after hearing voices nearby. When she was found soon after by a schoolgirl, she was already dead. Again, well-meaning residents washed down the crime scene to maintain Dorothy's dignity. The man took the $300 he stole from the purse and made his way to the Mosman RSL. 24 hours later, 81-year-old
1: Olive Cleveland was sitting on a park bench outside her retirement village, which was Wesley Gardens, the same place he molested Marjorie Mosley. A man approached and joined her on the bench, striking up a conversation Eventually, Olive grew uncomfortable with the situation and got up to walk home. The man quickly grabbed her and forced her into a nearby secluded side alley where he hit her with his hammer and banged her head repeatedly into a concrete wall. He then removed her pantyhose and strangled her with them. He took all of her belongings, her clothes, shoes and glasses, arranged them neatly and stole $60 from her purse. Olive had sadly passed away when she was found and again, her death was attributed to a fall initially and was hosed down. Gee, that's, that's frustrating for the police. Yeah,
0: absolutely. There was no eyewitnesses to the crime. Olive's post mortem examination results were similar to that of the other ladies. At this point, police decided that they needed to appeal to the public, as they clearly had a dangerous serial killer on their hands. They offered a $200,000 reward for information about the crimes, and obviously in those days that was a a fair bit more money, yeah. Elderly people from Sydney's North Shore area were terrified. They began to vary their daily routines to avoid becoming the next victim of the man who was now dubbed the granny killer. Security seminars were offered to the elderly population to help them stay safe under the circumstances. The team of investigators grew from 15 to 70 as the urgency of the situation became dire. On the 23rd of November 1989, the man was having a beer in the the Buena Vista Hotel in Mosman when he spotted his next target. Muriel Falconer was very active for her 93 years of age. She had just been to the local fruit shop, the bank, and collected her daily food from Meals on Wheels. It was approximately 5pm and the man was
1: angry, full of hatred and rage. When Muriel caught his eyes, he left his beer half full and went to his car to collect his gloves and his hammer. He began to follow Muriel and did this until she was right outside her home. He then grabbed her around the mouth and pulled her into her house and much like his other attacks, used his hammer to quiet her. She screamed when he began to take off her pantyhose which caused him to viciously beat her until she passed away. He put her pantyhose around her neck, removed her underwear and displayed her in a degrading and horrible manner. He then arranged all of her possessions with his now signature neatness and making off with the $100 cash.
0: The next day, her Meals on Wheels representative became concerned when he couldn't get in contact with her and alerted one of her neighbours. It was her neighbour who discovered her, and finally the police had a crime scene which was still intact. When investigators used chemical and light treatments in the area, they were able to uncover a shoe impression. The shoe appeared to be a business or military type shoe, and seemed to be the type that was more often worn by older men. When police canvassed the area, the neighbour actually realised they had seen someone in the area the day before they had seen a middle-aged, grey-haired, heavy-set man who they thought might have been like a doctor leaving the area. Mm. The description of an older man actually seemed to match the shoe print as well as the military-style neatness in which the perpetrator left his victim's belongings. Investigators took this opportunity to communicate with other nearby police stations for similar crimes or crime with perpetrators with similar descriptions.
1: This was when police came across an assault that had happened on the 11th of January 1989 in Mossman, which was obviously a month before the first murder. Margaret Todd Hunter was 84 years old when she was walking alone. The man spotted her and parked his vehicle nearby. He approached her and attacked her with his fists before stealing contents of her purse, which was around $200. At the time, investigators didn't have any suspects, and attributed the crime to a mugging. When they re-interviewed Margaret about her attacker, she told them he was grey-haired, middle-aged man with a large stomach and broad shoulders, a perfect match for their murder suspect. She provided enough details about the man that they were able to create a sketch of what he looked like. The gut feeling was they had their man, now they just needed to figure out who he was.
0: Daisy Roberts was an 82-year-old woman who was living in a palliative care unit at Greenwich Hospital as an advanced cancer patient. A man wearing a work uniform and carrying a clipboard approached her and asked if she was losing body heat before pulling up her nightie and indecently assaulting her. A staff member quickly intervened and saw the man assaulting Daisy. She confronted him, but he quickly took off. Luckily, she was able to get his licence plate number off his car and was able to report that, as well as the fact that he was the hospital's pie delivery man to the police. This was the break in the case that they needed, and for the first time, they became fully aware of a man named John Wayne Glover, who was the pie delivery man for 4 and 20 pies police obtained the photo of Glover and took it to the Greenwich Hospital palliative care unit where Daisy and staff were able to confirm that this was the man that had attacked her.
1: At this stage they still hadn't linked Glover to any of the murders but they did contact him to attend the police station in regards to the assault on Daisy Roberts. When he didn't attend the police station police called his house and got his wife on the phone. She told them that he was at the Royal North Shore Hospital after attempting to commit suicide by overdose. Police attended the hospital in an attempt to interview him, but he refused. He only consented to them taking a Polaroid picture of him. While there, hospital staff handed over a suicide note Glover had written on a 4 and 20 pies letterhead that said, No more grannies, no more grannies.
0: Eventually, the suicide note and Polaroid picture were handed over to investigators assigned to the granny killings. There were undeniable similarities between the Polaroid photo and the sketch that was created by Margaret Toddhammer. Police had their suspicions that Glover was involved in the murders, but they didn't want to go in hard on him because they didn't want him to freak out and attempt suicide again. So instead, they put surveillance on him. On the 19th of March, 1990, John Wayne Glover called his workplace to say that he wouldn't be coming in that day because he was going to visit his solicitor. He went to the liquor store and picked up a bottle of whiskey and headed to a house in Beauty Point in Mosman. This was the house of 60-year-old divorcee Joan Sitclair, who was reportedly having an affair with Glover. She let him into the house at approximately 10 a.m., Police kept guard outside the house waiting for Glover to emerge. By 1pm they grew concerned when there had been no observable movement from the house despite a dog barking continuously from inside. By 6pm they had obtained permission to enter the house and two uniform officers knocked.
1: They went around the back of the house and through the rear screen door they could see a claw hammer lying in a pool of dried up blood Police entered and searched the house and sadly they found Joan dead, beaten to death with her head wrapped up in a bundle of blood-soaked towels. She had the characteristic pantyhose wrapped around her neck and was naked from the waist down with damage to her genital area. They discovered John Wayne Glover laying in a full bath unconscious and he was transported to the Royal North Shore Hospital under police guard. When Glover came around, police questioned him and he admitted to killing his mistress with the claw hammer. He told them he then ran a bath, took a bunch of Valium with a bottle of whiskey and slashed
0: his wrists. As you can imagine, the public scrutiny was intense that Glover had managed to kill another victim while police were actually keeping guard outside the home. Police confronted Glover with evidence that he had been involved in all of the killings of elderly women around the North Shore area, and he did confess to that. He was charged with 14 offences, which included six counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted murder, one count of robbery with wounding, four counts of indecent assault, and one count of assaulting a female. John Wayne Glover was born on the 26th of November 1932 in Wolverhampton, England. His mother left his father when he was young, and as a result, John developed a hatred for her. She had many boyfriends and husbands going in and out of the house when Glover was growing up. Glover began committing petty crimes when he was 15 years old. He began stealing women's clothing and handbags. He spent some time in the British Army but was quickly thrown out when it was discovered the crimes that he had committed. He seemed to have a fascination with older women, which escalated after his own mother died. Some would suggest that he had gerontophilia which is a sexual preference for the elderly and is obviously the opposite of pedophilia.
1: Glover moved to Australia in 1956 where he continued committing crimes. In 1962, he was found guilty of assaulting two women and four counts of larceny and assault with bodily harm. For this, he only received three years probation, even though some of his assaults were actually severe. He left one 25-year-old woman unconscious and bleeding profusely after attacking her. In 1965, he was convicted of being a peeping Tom and finally spent some time in prison, even if it was only six weeks. He married Jacqueline Gayle Rolls, or Gay, to friends and family in 1968. The couple had two daughters, Kelly in 1971 and Marnie in 1973. He worked multiple different jobs over the years and at the time of the murders, he was a sales rep for 4 and 20 meat pies.
0: Hence why... Oh, 420 pies that's why. Yes. The trial of John Wayne Glover began on the 28th of March, 1990. He entered a plea of not guilty on the grounds of diminished responsibility. One of Glover's psychologists testified that he had mother issues, which stemmed from his relationship with his mother and mother-in-law. He seemed to hate older women, but at the same time, he was attracted to them. Glover's crimes were well thought out and well planned and he was fully aware of his actions, even taking the time between the crimes to clean up his claw hammer with acid. And eventually um, Glover was found guilty and when he was sentenced, the judge stated, Glover is able to choose when to attack and when to stay his hand. He is cunning and able to cover his tracks. It is plain that he has chosen his moments carefully." Although the crimes have been opportunistic, he has not gone in where risks were overwhelming. The crimes involved extreme violence inflicted on elderly women, accompanied by theft or robbery of their property. He is exceedingly dangerous. On the 9th of September
1: 2005, John Wayne Glover died. He committed suicide via hanging in his prison cell. Just prior to his suicide, Glover had a visitor to whom he handed a sketch of a park. Glover made a point to show his visitor two pine trees in the sketch. Right in the middle of the right pine tree, he had written the number nine in between the branches and leaves. It is thought that this number may be the number of murders Glover committed that are still unsolved. Police have their suspicions about the other murders that may have been committed by Glover, but to this
0: day there is no solid evidence. Elderly people are some of the most vulnerable in our community and it is truly sick to imagine them spending the last moments of their lives the way that Glover forced upon them. Our thoughts go out to the family and friends of the victims in this case. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The True Crime Sisters. Please join us again next week for a new episode and until then, please stay safe.